Good morning, ICP. It's wonderful to be here with you online today. For those of you who don't know me, my wife, Selene, and I were formerly the discipleship directors here at ICP until June of last year. And we became involved with the church through the TCK summer camps back in 2012. And we eventually moved to Prague for three years to oversee Youth Praha and Young Adults Ministry and, and various other things. But last year, the Lord did what I never would have expected him to do as a missionary kid myself, which was to send us as missionaries to the U.S. where I was born. And so I've become a pastor, but really I'm still European at heart. And we couldn't stay away from this beautiful city that we love so much. So we're here on a short visit for our visa interview at the U.S. Embassy. And I'm grateful for the opportunity to be able to speak to you this morning. Over the past year, the Lord has really been speaking to us about the importance of unity and love in the body of Christ. And we believe that unless there's a revival of love, there will be no revival. And one of the interesting things about our move to the U.S. is that we've followed in the footsteps of the Moravians. And the Moravians came from Central Europe, of course, originally from Moravia and then from Count Zinzendorf's estate in Saxony at, at Herrenhut. And the, the city that we live in in the U.S. in Pennsylvania is called Bethlehem. It was founded by Moravian missionaries in 1741, and that's the town I was born in. And if you know the history of the Moravians, they were the precursors to the Great Awakening, to the missions movements of the past 200 years, and they lived an absolutely radical, inspiring vision of the gospel. And you, you may have heard of them for their 100 years of continuous prayer and for their worldwide missions. And there was a particular moment that's often seen as the birth of the Moravian movement, and it's sometimes called Moravian Pentecost. It was the 13th of August, 1727. Count Zinzendorf had opened his estate to all kinds of religious refugees who were fleeing persecution, and these passionate, fiery people formed community. But what happened was there were all kinds of divisions and arguments that began to flare up, and there was no sense of unity. And so on the afternoon of August 13th, 1727, Zinzendorf gathered the people for a special communion service where they were called to repent, to stop judging one another, to put aside their differences and focus on their unity in Christ through the Eucharist. And so there was this miraculous revival of love that took place in that moment, which the Holy Spirit then used to spearhead them into a global revival. So I believe that if we desire to see revival in our day, in our society, which we desperately need, and I, I, I know that many of you desire, we need to work for a revival of love and unity within the church, within the body of Christ. And so because of the moment we're living in right now, this morning I wanted to focus on a particular threat to our unity and love in the church, which is to do with controversy. We seem to be living in an age of controversy, and that was true before the pandemic. It's certainly being highlighted by the pandemic and the, the protests and riots happening around the world and especially the U.S. And it's an area where we need to be especially careful not to conform to the world's ways, but to be transformed by Christ's way. And I think it's an important discipleship issue because the internet age has given controversy more prominence in our lives maybe than ever before. And so we're experiencing more social and political division. We desperately need to know how to deal with it 
Christianly. And so we're going to read from the second letter of Timothy, chapter 2. And we're going to look at three questions. What kinds of controversies should we engage in? How should we engage in them? And what is the motivation for engaging in them in this way? So it's the what, the how, and the why. Now, as we read this passage, picture Paul the Apostle. He's in prison near the end of his life. He's probably awaiting execution in Rome, and he's writing to his protege, Timothy, who was a young pastor in Ephesus. This is his final letter. And so he's giving him his final advice on becoming the kind of person that he should be as a disciple of Jesus, and especially as a leader within the church. So let's read from chapter 2, starting in verse 23. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So our first question is what kinds of controversies should we engage with? Now notice that the passage doesn't say to avoid all controversies. Because obviously Jesus was controversial for exposing hypocrisy. Paul himself was controversial for challenging Peter and confronting false teaching. And so clearly there's some controversies that we are called to engage with. So I want to approach this as the passage does, by looking firstly at the kinds of controversies we should not engage with. Some people have called this the post-truth era, which the Oxford Dictionary defines as circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. Now, one reason is that there's been a massive erosion of trust in public institutions and leaders. Another is the democratizing effects of the internet. We're simultaneously living in the information age and the misinformation age. And so I want to address one particular effect of this, because one of the results of all this is that conspiracy theories have gone from the fringes to virtually the mainstream of our society. Now, a conspiracy theory is a theory that explains something as a result of a secret plot by powerful conspirators. So how do we deal with controversial conspiracy theories as believers? Well, I remember when I was uh, first in university and I had a lot of time on my hands and I watched a lot of internet documentaries claiming to expose the truth about 9-11 and the Kennedy assassination and the Illuminati that's running the world. And so I can tell you from personal experience the, the allure that these kinds of theories often have. They're fascinating because what they claim to offer is hidden knowledge that sets your mind free from control and enlightens you to the real world, which is a little bit ironic since Illuminati means enlightened ones. But history tells us pandemics actually go hand in hand with conspiracy theories. And this one in particular has been very fruitful. They thrive in times where we feel powerless because they offer overarching explanations and ready-made enemies for us to blame. But there's some very serious things for us to consider as Christians 
with regards to this mode of thinking. And, and that's what I think it is. More than anything else, it's a mode of thinking. And what I'm saying is, it's, it's more than even just the particular theories themselves. It's about the subtle worldview that they often encourage, that when you look at it, has some pretty fundamental clashes with the biblical worldview. Conspiratorial thinking is based on a foundation of suspicion. That's the essential stance. And so the outcome of that is that it naturally assumes the worst. It takes a victim's perspective that anything bad must have been planned and intentional. It leads to an essentially negative view of reality. But the biblical worldview is based on a foundation of trust. Faith is at the core. It's an essential trust that ultimate reality is good and loving and has our best at heart. Why? Because ultimate reality is an all-loving creator father who made everything for his glory, which is our good. And so you see the two foundations are opposed. And you might say, Ian, are you saying that we should just blindly trust everything in life, everything authorities tell us? Well, I don't want you to mishear me. Of course, I'm not saying that. Real conspiracies do happen. Real life cover-ups are exposed all the time. So we have a duty to investigate, to find out the truth. We can't simply assume that people always have our best interests at heart because there's this little thing called sin. But Jesus said, be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. There's a huge difference between a worldview which takes suspicion as its starting point versus one which takes trust as its starting point. So how do we discern the difference? Well, this passage hints at some essential tools that help us discern what not to engage with. Paul tells us plainly in verse 23, have nothing to do with foolish and ignorant controversies, which highlights thought and knowledge. Now the word foolish here in Greek is an expression of faulty thinking. The word we unfortunately get moron from. <laughs> Ignorance means a lack of knowledge. And the original word here meant uninformed or, or not based on learning. So this tells us two very important, very practical things. Beware of controversies that involve faulty thinking and uninformed claims. So thinking well is a skill. And most of the time, we're so busy being told what to think that we neglect to learn how to think. And it's essential to learn what constitutes a good argument. We have to beware of accepting something just because it confirms what we already believe or how we feel about something. Now, even though those are persuasive arguments, they're not actually valid arguments. They're not good arguments. And then secondly, there's knowledge. If something is controversial, it's all the more important to check the facts independently. If you come across something potentially controversial, it's important to ask yourself, this is saying something pretty strong. So firstly, check the thinking. Do I notice any bad arguments, any political motivations, whether or not it's my own? Is it believable or is it sensational? Secondly, check the knowledge. Is this based on knowledge? Is it verifiable or is it conjecture? Is this a trusted source? Does this speaker write from knowledge? Does he write with an appropriate style? Now we could do a whole series of classes on this, but the initial point I'm trying to get across is that wherever you encounter a controversy that may be based on bad thinking or ignorance, be very careful before you engage in it. 
Check the thinking, check the sources. And if it seems like it may be lacking in either of those areas, simply don't share it. Now the problem obviously is much more complicated than that because relationally, we disagree more than ever on what constitutes good thinking or actual facts. So thankfully, there's a third test in this passage, which is the test of love. Look at the fruit of engaging in this particular controversy. Is it loving? Paul says you can recognize them because they breed quarrels. In verse 14, he says, remind them of these things. Charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. In 1 Timothy 6, 4, it says, they only produce envy, dissension, slander, and evil suspicions. Now, does that sound like any Facebook comment sections you've seen recently? <laughs> we need to be extremely careful with these things because they have effects on real people made in the image of God. And we shouldn't forget that the world is vulnerable at times like this, at times of great tension and powerlessness, that, that foolish and ignorant controversies can and have contributed to some of the greatest evils in history. Now, it, it sounds slightly uh, extreme to say this, but remember that the Holocaust itself was based on centuries-old anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, which are alive and well today, by the way. But even, even on a smaller scale, these controversies damage our unity. They damage our love for one another, which damages our witness to a watching world. So Christians, here's our reminder, as Paul says, we need to be the ones who refuse to contribute to the types of controversies that do nothing but breed quarrels, that do nothing to build people up, but only tear them down, that naturally end up in nothing but envy, dissensions, slander, and evil suspicions. So for some things, that means not getting involved at all. But for other things, it might just mean choosing the right time and place to engage in them. Some conversations need to be had one-on-one -on -one rather than in a public setting. Certain conversations you just shouldn't have over text or via social media. If you find yourself entering a conversation online that quickly is spiraling downward into arguments and accusations, it's an indication that it might be time to drop it. It might be time to rather pick up the phone and talk to your brother or sister. The world is watching. And so that type of thing doesn't do anything to build anyone up and it certainly doesn't reflect well on Christ. Now, I don't want you to mishear me because none of this means that we should never enter controversy. I believe that we shouldn't shy away from controversies where love and mercy and justice, for instance, are at stake. I believe we are very much in one of those moments where we are called to enter into the fray of controversy. The church has led the way on controversial topics of justice and love in the past. And you only have to think of Wilberforce with the abolition of slavery or, or the Christians involved in the Declaration of Human Rights or the, uh, Martin Luther King with the Civil Rights Movement. At times, love requires that we engage in controversy. And so I believe the church is again being called to the forefront on these issues. But love also means that as we do that, we must exemplify a different kind of discourse, which is the second point. How are we to engage in controversial topics? So Paul says this, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. 
So how do we go about engaging controversial questions? The answer is the way of Christ, of kindness, of understanding, of patience and gentleness. How often do we see that? That is so countercultural right now. But that is the spirit we are called to operate in. If you want an example of what that looks like, the best one I know is Ravi Zacharias, whom the world has been mourning uh, as he passed away a couple of weeks ago. Ravi was probably the world's best known public Christian thinker. He was an evangelist and apologist who dedicated his life to helping, as he said, the believer think and the thinker believe. And Selena and I had the privilege of training under him and his team at Oxford. Um, and it was one of the most impacting moments of our lives. And one of the most impacting moments of that time was when we got to meet Ravi as a class. And we all, of course, knew his work. We knew his intellectual rigor, his, his long resume. But the thing that impacted us so profoundly wasn't just what he shared. It was his presence, his character. And in all his interactions with us, in all his answers, what he emitted was this humility, this compassion, this authenticity, this genuine concern for us as students. And it just, it felt like the presence of Jesus. Now, areas like apologetics and theology, they're often seen as being all about dry ideas and fruitless debates unconnected to real life. And sometimes they attract people that do love to quarrel about words, like Paul says. But when you look at Ravi, he lived a different way, a way which shows that dealing with hard topics was not just about the questions, but actually about the questioners. Now, in his obituary on CNN, it said that Ravi saw that people weren't logical problems waiting to be solved. They were people who needed the person of Christ. Those who knew him well will remember him first for his kindness, gentleness, and generosity of spirit. The love and kindness he had come to know in and through Jesus Christ was the same he wanted to share with all he met. Now what that says to me is a shining example of exactly what Paul was talking about in this passage. So just as Ravi himself said at Billy Graham's funeral, a great voice has been lost, but the message lives on. And so Ravi and his voice will be missed, but what I'm praying is that many more would stand on his shoulders, especially at a time like now, and continue the message in the same spirit in which he delivered it. So as we look at this passage, Paul says the Lord's servant should be able to teach. What that means is we need to do our best to truly understand whatever it is we engage with. Now that applies to church leaders, of course, but not only to church leaders, because every Christian is a servant of Christ. And we're called, all of us, to make disciples. And it's very hard to share a gospel which you yourself don't understand. It's very hard to correct anyone if you don't know the right answer yourself. And so, yes, thinking is important. Study is important. And one of the best ways of finding out how much you really understand is by trying to teach someone else what it's all about. So there is understanding. There are techniques for us to learn and study. But what this passage then goes on to bring out even more strongly is the importance of character. Because too often we can pay attention to the ideas and the understanding and the techniques of, of preaching the gospel, but we neglect our own character. And so don't just pay attention to understanding and being right, but pay attention to your character. As Paul says, your kindness, your patience, your gentleness. 
If you embody the kindness of Christ, the patience of Christ, the gentleness of Christ, what you'll find is that you can dialogue, even on controversial topics, in a way that doesn't breach love. So, thirdly, I want to end by reflecting on the motivation for why we're called to engage this way. Some people will say, well, Ian, this is naive. It's not going to get you ahead in the world. It's, it's, it's too trusting. It's too nice. Isn't it time that Christians stand up for themselves, stand up for truth? And what about all these other people and media outlets that, that refuse to play fair? Well, Paul ends this passage this way. He says, the Lord's servant should be like this. In other words, because God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So this gives us the why behind the what and the how. The reason we are not to engage in foolish and ignorant controversies and the reason why we should go about the ones we do engage with in a certain way is, firstly, loving people is always our goal. It's never just about winning arguments. It's about winning people. God cares about people in these controversies more than he cares about the controversies themselves. Remember that every person is a human being that Jesus died for. And that applies to anyone, let alone your brothers and sisters in Christ, anyone that you encounter in a controversy. He wants them to be won over and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And so all our conversations should be aimed at winning people to Christ, not just winning arguments. Secondly, Satan is the real enemy. And this passage tells us that the ultimate enemy that ensnares the world and in false ways of thinking, that enslaves people to false, destructive ways of being, it's, it's not corporations, it's not governments, it's not elites, it's not the media, it's not capitalism or communism or any other ism. It is the Satan, the great accuser, the enemy of God and of our souls. And I think it's clearer than ever that what we're up against are spiritual principalities. And that's why Paul says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes, not of the media, but of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces in the heavenly places. Remember that the original conspiracy theory was in the Garden of Eden. Satan said, basically, Eve, there's a secret plot being carried out by God to deceive your mind, to keep you in submission. And so here's secret knowledge by which you'll be enlightened and you can escape that oppression and see the world for what it really is. And so this is quite literally the oldest trick in the book. We don't need secret cabals of powerful people to explain evil. We know that there is very real, very powerful enemies trying to subvert the world, but it's not people. It's principalities. It's the prince of the power of the air that is the true enemy. And thirdly, and lastly, what this passage reminds us is that the conspiracy we should be most concerned with is what Dallas Willard called the divine conspiracy. God is secretly, discreetly at work in the world, subverting evil for good. Why do you think Jesus went to the cross? 
He turned the greatest act of evil in history, the murder of the Son of God, into the greatest act of love in all eternity. And in that moment, a conspiracy was released to turn darkness into light. And that's the work of God. And so we carry ourselves in the midst of controversy like this because God is the one that brings a person to repentance. In Greek, repentance literally means a change of mind. We don't need to be enlightened to the true secret story of the world because God has already revealed it to us. Ephesians 3 says, Christ brought to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. God is up to something much bigger than the devil could ever hope to do. And because we partner with him in that, we don't bother with distractions that make us obsess over evil and disrupt our unity along the way. And what it does is it makes us free to be kind and generous to all, free to teach without pride, free to be patient in the face of suffering, and free to be gentle, even with those who oppose us. Let us work for a revival of love and unity, that the Holy Spirit may bring a revival through us, that the world may know that we are his disciples, and that we may be one with him, just as Jesus is one with him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that this universe is a perfectly safe place to be. Why? Because as your children, we are safe in your love. Even though the enemy may destroy our bodies, he can't destroy our souls. We are safe in you and nothing not life, nor death, nor rulers, nor powers, nor principalities, nor viruses, nor anything else in heaven and earth, as Paul says, can separate us from your love. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be emboldened, that we would be uh, humble in how we approach controversy, that we would work in tandem with your Holy Spirit at work in the world, Lord, to to be those uh, humble, patient, uh, enduring people who are able to teach because they truly understand, who are able to correct gently because they're truly humble and know that their value and worth is in you. And Lord, I pray that you would unite us in love and unity as a church. As we recover the art of conversation, we recover the art of having dialogue And Lord, that you would use us in in a moment such as this, full of controversy, full of protest and and violence and, and, and mistrust, Lord, that you would use us as a force to rebuild trust, to rebuild unity and love and justice. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.